School PR professionals spend a week or two each year networking, if they're lucky. We pour into this professional development and the conversations drive us in our work. Collaboration is one of the best parts of our job, but then we go back to our daily work and the buzz of bright conversations and innovation starts to wear off. Welcome to School PR Happy Hour. We seek to create a shared space of collaboration and an opportunity to continue those conversations long after the closing sessions of our state and national conferences. We are a community, a community of communicators that lean on each other in hard times and learn from each other regularly. This podcast is about just that, getting to know each other better and sharing our passions about furthering education one story at a time. Welcome back to School PR Happy Hour. I'm Erin McCann. For today's episode, we've invited a very special friend of the show to join us. You've heard her name mentioned by several past guests on episodes this year, and she's been a huge supporter of School PR Happy Hour, both in person and online in our Teespra and Innsbruck communities. Julie Thanum, APR, is the Assistant Superintendent for Board and Community Relations in Carroll ISD. She is a past Teespra and Innsbruck president, a wealth of knowledge, and also happens to be Justin's boss. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here today, Erin. We are so glad to have you here. And in fact, for every episode that Justin and I have brainstormed topics on, we're like, oh, we could use Julie for that, or <laughs> we could use Julie for that. You've just got such a wealth of experience. But I'm really excited to talk to you about the subject that we chose for today. Before we jump in, tell us a little bit about how you got started in school PR and how you found yourself where you are today. Absolutely. I was a journalism major in college at Eastern Illinois University, and I had always wanted to go into broadcast. But then when I got into college, uh, I had a professor that kind of took me under uh, his wing and said, you are a great writer, and I really think you would do really great in newspaper work. So I moved to the journalism newsprint side of um, things and still got my speech communications minor. But my journalism degree, I came down to Texas. I started working at a newspaper for a little while. And it was shortly after that, about 18 months later, that I started visiting with a superintendent of, at the time at Eagle Mountain Saginaw ISD, where I got my start. And I, little did I know that when I was visiting with him, that was my job interview. <laughs> and uh, I went to work for them and uh, worked in Eagle Mountain Saginaw for seven years. That's where I became a TSPRA member and an INSPRA member and where I started my journey for um, getting my accreditation in uh, public relations. So I really was a one-person office and I learned a lot. Um, I got myself acclimated to the journalism side of things using my journalism degree and writing press releases and telling stories and all the things that we still do. However, the job has changed so much. In seven years, into it, I came over to work at uh, Carroll ISD and became the first person to start a public information and communications program here. And um, I've been here ever since. So my, my 24th year in Carroll, which makes that 31 in school communication. So I, it's hard to believe. Congratulations. It's quite Thank an you. accomplishment. It is. Some some days it seems like it went really fast and other days uh, I, it has felt like 31 years. So I have, I love uh, <laughs> this job. I love what we do, but I can tell you that it is getting harder and harder. And at mm -hmm. this point, even 31 years into my career, I am still learning new things all the time. And so we have dealt with some very difficult things. One being the topic that we're going to talk about today. And I 
I have learned a lot and still learning a lot in my personal journey towards cultural competence and what it means in education, what it means for our students and our staff and our communities. So uh, it's been a challenging last couple of years, but we grow most, right, when we deal with adversity. Absolutely. And I think this is a great topic for us to talk about because I think with all of the school districts, both here in Texas and then, of course, across the nation, we're all in different places addressing this. So I think it's really very relevant. Before we start in on kind of the inciting incident, can you give us a high level explanation of Carol ISD? Justin's talked about it a little bit in episodes, but just to kind of refamiliarize our audience. Absolutely. We have about 8,600 students and about 1,200 employees. We are a high performing district located in right here in the heart of the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. I like to consider us as a, a big district with a small town home town feel. We have highly educated parents, high socioeconomic area. And I think that a lot of people know us for um, athletics and things like that. But we also, our students do very well academically and with the arts. And so we got great students, very supportive parents. It's a wonderful place to work. But because of those high expectations and because of the highly educated demographic that we work with, it is at sometimes a difficult place to work. And there are a lot of high expectations. And I I know that's the same way in a lot of communities, but especially here in Southlake. I think that's important to address. So in December, Carol ISD co-hosted a a North Texas regional school PR meeting with another district with Highland Park ISD. And the topic was being culturally sensitive and inclusive. And so I, I thought that Carol ISD's portion was particularly interesting. You had a couple of events, I believe, that led to your focus. Can you kind of walk us through that process? and some of the things that jump-started it? Absolutely. On a Friday evening in October of 2018, we had a video of some of our students here in the South Lake community in Carroll ISD. They were making a video at a private residence. They were. It was an after-event party, I guess, is the best way to describe it. It had been a, a homecoming event. They had made a video, and they were chanting the N-word in the video. It took about a week before the video actually started to circulate. So by Friday night, I literally had just sat down and told my husband, wow, what a week. We really need to rest. And I'm so excited to have my Friday. And I don't think it was but an hour later when we were dealing with the already getting texts and emails and some outcry about this video that had been, it had originally started on Snapchat, but some kids in our our community. Some of our students uh, were understandably upset by what they were seeing and hearing in the video and they went out and took to Twitter. So that's where we actually saw it first was on Twitter. But I think it was like 8.39 p.m. on a Friday in October when it all started to happen. And again, this was a post-homecoming party that had happened a week earlier at a private residence and the students decided that they were going to, someone was going to take this video and put it out there in social media. So it started to go viral And within just a few hours, we were getting emails and texts and complaints. And we had heard from city leaders and our school board leaders wanting to know what our official district response was going to be. And I I just remember thinking,
thinking, it's Friday night. I know in this job, we're never truly off the clock. I always like to say we operate a little bit like firemen. When your house is on fire, you want us to be ready and to go and highly trained and capable to take care of your problem. And that's certainly what I was willing to step up and do. But this um, became a pretty big deal in our community. Because of the nature of social media, we got a lot of comments and a lot of outcry outside mm-hmm. of our community as well. And a lot of things that were unfairly said about our community and really erroneous about our community. You know, there were a lot of comments like, you're 90% white. What did anybody expect? You just have white rich kids. I mean, you, you name it. There was lots of things that were said. Our main responsibility we felt was to get the hurtful video down to stop it from being circulated over and over again and going viral. Now, you know, there were even accusations that the reason that we wanted to get it down was because we were worried about our image or our reputation. And what school PR person or what school district isn't worried about their image or their reputation? And and, and an individual is too. But the most important thing is that we knew that the use of the N-word was hurtful and uh, it was something that we did not want our students to be known for, but we did not want it to continue to be shared. And that's what was happening. That began angry emails and the media contacted us by Sunday morning. We had decided that we had to send out a response. And so we, we sent out an initial response from the district via email to all of our families and our staff on Saturday. By, by Sunday, we had media inquiries and we were having parent meetings. So this turned into a school safety issue. It turned into a, a student discipline situation. And it really became kind of a, a catalyst for some of our minority populations coming forward and saying that, Carol ISD, what are you going to do to make mm-hmm. sure that um, our students feel safe and feel valued, especially our minority students, regardless if it's their race, their their ethnicity, their socioeconomic background, you know, their religion or their sexual orientation, all of these protected minority groups that are protected by law. It's the school district's responsibility to make sure that those students feel safe and valued. And it's also the community's responsibility. So we join hands with the mayor and she took a very strong stance against the video as did we. And we just tried to make sure that our messaging was on point, that this was not acceptable, that it was inappropriate, wasn't going to be tolerated. There would be consequences. You know, I don't mind telling you, Erin, there were a lot of people with opinions about whether or not we even had the authority to step in and comment on an incident that happened off school grounds and and not at a school event. When things spill over into the day, we had to get extra security at our high school because there were rumors of threats. And thankfully, they were just rumors. But as those rumors of threats started circulating, we had we had students, especially some of our black students and other students that were afraid to come to school. And there's no district that wants students to be afraid to come to school. It ought to be a safe and welcoming environment for them. And so we had to pull in some additional administrators and do some things at the campus to kind of settle down and help everybody understand that safety was a top priority and that we were going to, as a district, we were going to address this. So it was difficult. The first few days after the video went viral, it was a wake-up call, I think, for a lot of us. A year and a half now later, we are working with a district diversity council of some amazing and wonderful individuals representing different minority populations, religions, groups in our community, and they are have been a wonderful resource to us, and they have provided a lot of input. But some of these same individuals were very frustrated and furious with Carol ISD back when the video 
first came out. It was just a conversation that was long overdue. There's a lot of districts that probably are far advanced in this whole discussion about cultural competence or cultural proficiency, equity. You know, we had to really look at ourselves in the mirror and say, what are we doing to deal with this situation and to reassure our families that we value and embrace all the diversity coming our way? And quite frankly, we weren't 90% white. We aren't. We haven't been for a long time. And so we realized there were a lot of misperceptions out there as well. You mentioned a couple of times, first of all, I think you guys handled it well. I remember watching this happen. So I wanted to take the time to say that it's it's never easy to handle something like this. It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant and people feel marginalized. But I thought that Carol ISD handled it really well. Thank you. Appreciate that. Absolutely. When the crisis piece kind of had the dust had settled on that and you weren't dealing with the incident of the video so much and you're sort of dealing with the fallout. You mentioned a couple of times different minority groups feeling left out, feeling marginalized. What were some of the immediate steps that Carol ISD took to not to put a band-aid over it, but to start to heal that wound? And then as time moved on, you mentioned this district diversity committee. What are some of the longer term steps that you've put into place to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again? Sure. Well, I had about 48 hours to start to put together a cultural competence action plan. And I got to tell you, this was not something that I had in my own personal toolbox other than good community engagement. I I know how to get stakeholder input. I know how to be a good listener. And that's kind of where we started. Some of the steps we took immediately. And when, when I say this, this is within the first few hours of it happening. And then the first few days, we did issue a public statement condemning the racial slur video. We handed down student consequences based on the disruption to the school environment, that piece in our student code of conduct. But we also immediately started to see that there were some inconsistencies in our student code of conduct and definitely some inconsistencies in how we had handled either past microaggressions or incidents, not necessarily that rose to this level, but some of your smaller everyday things that happen when students are together and you really haven't done any training or any discussion about this type of topic. We added, because of the safety issue, we added some extra security and visibility at our high school. It was primarily our ninth and 10th grade campus. That's where the students that were in the video. That's where they attended. And so that became kind of the ground zero. And one of the things that I don't know why it came to me, but the one of the ideas I had was that students needed to see administrators that they recognize and feel good about. So we pulled up some of the male administrators that were great role models from our middle schools. And we brought them over that week to our high school. And this is something I would highly encourage you to look at in your system, because those ninth and 10th graders on that campus not only saw their own administrators there and central office folks and additional police presence, but they saw these trusted male administrators that they just love and had built a relationship in middle school with and that we could see them high-fiving them in the hallway. And it it just settled things down very quickly. And I I give credit to those administrators for the relationship building. And then I I just kind of thank God that in the moment we thought to do that. But that's one thing I wanted to share. We did partner with the mayor for consistent and strong messaging for what we put out to the media and to the community. And we called a public school board meeting. And this was probably one of the more difficult things that we did that people actually advised us not to do in some cases. But we called what you might call 
sort of a town hall. It was a public school board meeting where we allowed people to come and address the board and they were outraged. They, mm-hmm. um, they, they were upset, but I got to tell you, we got a great community. We got great families. And even during that outrage, I can remember reporters sitting in the audience and what they were tweeted was, this is exactly how a school district and a community should handle race relation tension because these are educated folks coming together to talk about a problem. The school board and the administration is listening to their heartfelt kind of uh, pleas for uh, addressing this situation. And we had, I think, 15 or 16 parents come forward. We spent several hours. We had lots of media present. There were lots of cameras in the boardroom. And generally, our board members and our administrators were, I, I won't say shocked, but we were so disappointed in some of the stories we heard and some of the personal experiences that our students and their families had gone through. And they admitted that in many cases, they did not bring these forward to the administration for either they wanted to kind of lay low and not make a big deal about it, or they didn't think anything would be done about it. And that kind of broke my heart as an administrator and as a person in Carol ISD for so long, because we want all of our students to feel welcome. And so just hearing some of those stories, that was probably the hardest board meeting I've ever sat through. But we listened and we gave them an opportunity to vent and to talk to us. And again, we have wonderful families. So they were very caring and they were very kind to us, but they wanted us to know that they felt like that the district had not been listening or not paying attention to the changing demographics and some of the things that their kids had experienced. And these little daily microaggressions where someone might call them a name or make a comment about their religion or about their sexual orientation or or the color of their skin, things like that. And we really wanted an emphasis on getting face-to-face with students. We were already embarking on this strategic plan where we were giving students more of a voice in the district. And so one of the things my school board wanted to do is they wanted to listen to what the students had to say, not just parents about this topic. We were asked to come up with a way for board members to meet face-to-face with kids, but not violate the Texas Open Meetings Act. And so we called a public board meeting for the purpose of holding diversity dialogues is what they we call them. And our stu- student council helped us host this. And we held these meetings and we put kids at tables with administrators and caring adults like counselors and school administrators and one board member at these tables. And it was for students in grades 9 through 12. And we posted the public meeting and we called the meeting to order. And we allowed the press to be there and to talk to any student or staff member or board member they wanted to before or after the event. But we did not allow them to mic up people during the event. And we didn't want like an open mic situation where students felt like they were on stage or um, being put on display publicly to tell their story. We wanted it to be very heartfelt. We wanted it to be face-to-face and very personal. So we sat around tables and students talked to board members about what they had experienced. And we had some prompts in the middle of the table and they could draw out some questions like, have you yourself ever been singled out or discriminated against, made fun of because of the color of your skin? your religion or any other reason. And if not you, have you ever witnessed this with your your friends or other students? What did you do? Why did you, what did you say if you did speak up? If you didn't, why didn't you feel comfortable speaking up? And we just started a dialogue. It was an absolutely amazing night. We had about 120 students and staff members show up. Well, the press was there. They interviewed our student council members. They interviewed students that were very touched that adults would listen to them. After the board members sat 
individually and heard all the students' personal stories. Then we went into closed session under student information and we were able to talk about some of the things we heard so that every board member could kind of get a feel for all the things the students had talked about. And that really set the tone and kind of a foundation for some of our uh, diversity discussions we've had with staff and parents going forward. But we started with the students. The other thing that we did is we had in February, we had planned for a district-wide staff development and we brought in speakers on diversity training. We brought Region 11 in to talk about cultural competence and white fragility and discrimination and microaggressions and to look at our demographics. And so it was a very powerful time, but it was really just scratching the surface. I got to tell you, there were staff members that were very defensive, not just because of the topic we were talking about, is because they felt like the blame was being placed on school educators for what the kids had done in on their own personal time and everything. And so there was a lot of hurt and anger, even from staff. And I think that through time, we've tried to help them understand that this is not just a South Lake problem. It's not just a Carroll problem. It's happening in every community. We can see our nation having just kind of an ugly discourse about and, and dialogue about some of the same topics. And you've seen, you know, even riots and protests and different hashtags for different cities and communities over different things that have happened. So it's not like we're going to tackle and solve uh, a major worldwide problem with some written plan that we have together. But I can tell you that all we can do is influence our little corner of the world and do what we can do to listen to our students and listen to what's going on and to take responsibility as educators and as a school district for the little everyday today things that happen in our schools where adults don't speak up or take action. And I think more than anything, we're setting the expectation in Carol ISD that we won't tolerate any kind of racial or religious or any kind of discrimination that's going to occur that singles someone out, that there will be consequences under our code of conduct. And so we've made changes to the code of conduct as well. We've tightened up that wording. We've given stronger consequences. And then we've, we're working very hard for accountability and consistency when things are reported to us. And I feel like we have an atmosphere of um, safe dialogue where a lot of students are coming forward either to tell us face-to-face, to share things that are happening. I think we're already seeing some very great changes. And I think more than anything as a leader, that was my concern. I don't just want to talk about it for a little bit and have everyone think that we think this is a one and done. We're not finished with this conversation, but before we continue, we are going to take a quick break to hear from Justin and our sponsor for this season, Class Intercom. After that, we'll be right back and finish our conversation. What's up, friends? As you know from previous episodes, one of my biggest passions is finding unique ways to give students a voice. They all have stories, and sometimes as the old camera guy in the admin building, I may not know about their stories or know what's going on every day in their classroom. Inner Class Intercom. After talking with some of my trusted colleagues in school PR, I learned about a program that feels like a social media platform, but also has a safety net built in for my sanity. Class Intercom puts the storytelling in the hands of the people experiencing it firsthand, the students. They create content, and then I get to choose where it goes next. From the sidelines of a sporting event or in the environmental club meeting, students can add their voice to your day-to-day district story. Learn more about Class Intercom at classintercom.com. 
Com. We've held some multicultural night events since all of this happened, and it, they have been wonderful events at our campuses. We were doing that at a couple of campuses, but not at all of our campuses. And those events are wonderful, but hosting a multicultural night is not in and of itself enough to ensure cultural competence and equity. And I guess I probably should point out too is with the resiliency project, which is a seven part project to build resiliency in students and to ensure strong, stronger, smarter, and braver dragons, as we say here in Carol ISD, we're the Carol Dragons. That project was doing a lot of anti bullying and kindness efforts. And I don't think that was going far enough. I think that teaching kindness and doing anti bullying prevention programs didn't go far enough to dialogue with our students so that they could actually ensure equity and inclusion and embrace diversity, embrace, embrace the changes that we uh, were seeing in our community. And they're wonderful changes. We have so many families moving in from all over the world. We have um, 26 different languages that we have in our ESL program. And you might be surprised that here in our community, the number two language is not Spanish, as most people might expect in a, in a Texas community. It's Mandarin Chinese. And so we are learning a lot more about our students, about their families. One of the really cool things that we did was in December, we launched a culture survey. This is the first survey of its kind in Carol ISD. And it asked a lot of demographic questions, a lot of personal questions about what religion do you practice at home? What languages do you speak at home? What country were your parents born in? A lot of different things about our students, our parents, and our staff. We did three different surveys, and we did this with the help of K-12 Insight. The K-12 Insight staff just recently came and presented our survey results to our school board at our February 3rd meeting. And we have so much data and so much information, and we're now going to recommend that we survey, conduct the survey every three to five years in Carroll ISD to just kind of see what our changing community looks like. And we are just thrilled with some of the information that we have from that. It not only provides us with demographic information that we didn't have before, but it also helps us to have have um, perceptions about equity and inclusion and the diversity in the community. And most of that was very positive, but we still have some issues that we need to address. And our families were great about answering some open-ended questions and letting us know a little bit more about their family celebrations, what holidays they embrace, what's important to them, what foods they would like to see offered in our cafeterias. That was another question that we asked. And then also we asked a question about if there was anything else they would like, an open-ended question, to tell us about the work that we were doing in, cult, in the area of cultural competence and equity and inclusion. And we got a lot of great feedback and we're still pouring through some of those survey results. So we've got some great data. You know, in our business, Aaron, you know what we do? We do a four-step process for every problem or, or situation, right? Of course, absolutely. So we started with our research and we've been building on that research, trying to find out who we are as dragons and what our students want us to know about them and their families. And that research we've been conducting also has taken us across the country, talking to other school districts that have gone through similar situations. We're working right now to possibly have an equity audit done of our curriculum and our policies. And that work is with the Equity Literacy Institute. And so we have really been doing
in our homework and talking to a lot of school districts about their own experiences and trying to share what we're learning. And we're not there yet. We still got a lot to go. You know, uh, some people may be listening and say, you know, well, why did you go for cultural competence instead of cultural proficiency or equity? Why is your focus on that? We really had done nothing. We were starting kind of at ground zero and we cultural competence is kind of the ability to understand, communicate with and kind of if effectively interact with people across cultures, people that are different from you. It's an ongoing process for every individual and for every organization. And when we started looking at the cultural competence continuum, we started looking at a lot of educators were raised or trained to be culturally colorblind. And what I mean and what I mean by that is, you know, we would have teachers say, well, I love all my students. I don't see their differences. I don't see the color of their skin. I treat them all the same. Well, our students were saying, then you don't see who we are. I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. But I was I was just going to agree with you because as a woman who is Caucasian and has some level of white privilege, whether I recognize that or not, I sort of for many years prided myself on the same thing. I just don't see color. I see the people. And I have a relative who belongs to several minority classes. And he sat me down and he's like, look, what you're saying is coming from a good place, but you don't understand. We desperately want you to see our color because our right. color makes up who we are. And I just think it's so fascinating that that wasn't just his opinion. That is not even the opinion. That's the fact. It is. And we're really stretching our staff. We have wonderful, amazing teachers who really care about kids here. And we are having uncomfortable conversations with them about things that they might not have noticed or realized or acted upon in the past. And we're asking them, and you know, Brene Brown talks about courage over comfort. And we mm -hmm. are absolutely asking our teachers to step out of their comfort zone and to look through a different lens. When you look through the lens of culturally competent schools, you find out that it is about inclusiveness and it's about equity, but you have to look at all your policies. You have to look at your programs and you have to look at your practices day to day. Carol I.C. is looking at all of those. In our policies, are our policies written to support and protect what the law protects as the minority populations or these uh, discriminatory acts against groups? Do our kids who have identified transgender or homosexual or bisexual or Muslim or Jewish students our students who are biracial, our students who uh, come from other countries, and they're already adjusting to the United States, and they're adjusting to our dragon culture. How are they being treated, and, and how are our policies protecting them? And then in our programs, does everybody have equal access to programs and to funds and to resources? Does everyone have the opportunity to do the things they want to do, regardless of where they come from, or what their skin color is, or what religion they practice? And then our practice practices every day just to hold teachers accountable and students accountable instead of not telling us and letting years of hurt build up and animosity towards the school district build up. Come talk to us and trust us enough that we're on this journey together. And so culturally competent schools, they have to address their curriculum. They have to go inside their classrooms and they have to look around and they have to see the pictures and the posters on the wall. They have to think about what music we're playing in passing periods and during concerts and when the band gets together? Are we opening the door up and the world up for our students to see different cultures and to embrace and, and really learn about 
people that are not like them. We have a tendency, we all know, to hang out with the people that looks like us. And it has just been an, an amazing last few months as we work with our diversity council of some absolutely wonderful people in our community. We have 63 members on that council. Wow. We call it the District Diversity Council, but we put that group together based on the fact that we wanted strong representation from our minority populations who may not have had as much representation in the past. And so that committee is just amazing. And I've learned so much. We've done a lot of team building with that group and learning about each other. We do a lot of activities to learn how diverse is your universe is one of the activities. As we did that, even some of our own minority populations realize that they were tending to kind of hang together as well and that it's there's a a lot of research out there about the adolescent mind and what um, kids do when they get in middle school and high school and there's a book out that uh, something to the effect and I'll probably not get the title exactly right um, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and so we tend to go to what's comfortable and we tend to hang with people that we know and uh, look like us and act like us and come from the same place Places we are and talk like us and eat the same things. And but what a boring world that is to only be with the people that are just like you. And and it's been really encouraging to see our kids branch out. You know, one of the really exciting things that happened is shortly after we formed the district diversity council and we also have campus councils at every school. Some of the students at that ninth and tenth grade campus, they decided, hey, at lunchtime, let's get together and let's have all the black students do a little short lunch presentation about their culture and about them and about what they like and what they don't like. And, you know, I I remember a student saying, I just want people to stop asking me if they can touch my hair, if they can stop asking me certain certain questions that are hurtful. And they said, you know, I I think it's just knowledge is power and people, they don't know what they don't know. And the kids did this themselves? They they Yes, yes, they had lunch together. And so uh, the first month was the black students that kind of sat on a panel and the kids would all get in together and the principals there and they would all visit and they would learn about each other. And the next time they invited the Asian students to to come and to kind of tell about themselves and tell what they would want their fellow classmates to know. And it was just this real organic, amazing kind of thing of students learning about each other. The one thing we kept hearing kids say is my friends who know me don't say these things or don't act this way because they know me and they care about me and they know it would hurt my feelings and it would be hurtful to me. And so we we're educators, right? So knowledge is power. And just getting out the knowledge, I think is really going a long way and showing that we care enough about each other to spend the time talking about the really hard things. And so we we've talked about certain words, what does it mean? What is ethnicity? What does it mean? Race? You know, race is not a part of culture. And this I think has been an eye opening thing for our teachers is Mm -hmm. that race is a social classification that was kind of made up. It's kind of a man made thing. It really is based more on physical characteristics of people. That's what race is. And it was, it's a social construct. It's your skin color, it's your facial features, it's your hair texture, it's those types of things. That's race. That is very different from culture. Our February training in Carroll ISD is all about what is culture and what do we want the dragon culture to be like and how is culture different 
from race. Uh, and one of the things we ran into when we were talking to people is there was a lot of cultural imposition. Now, cultural imposition is the idea that everyone should just conform to the majority. And I am amazed at how many people that try to convince us that they don't have racist thought, they don't feel like they're racist, they they feel like, you know, they, they treat everyone the same. But if people are going to move here, they ought to learn our language and they ought to conform to the majority. They ought to conform to what it's like to be a dragon. That has been eye-opening. I think that not only teaching about what a microaggression is, those are those little verbal and nonverbal things that happen every day. Sometimes they're intentional, but sometimes they're not intentional. Can I jump in here? Actually, Julie, you said something that sparked and um, I just I didn't write down the term that you just used. But it's when you said that um, we expect everyone to conform to ourselves. I had this thought a lot of times in our school districts, we see that our school boards who are our governing bodies are not necessarily representative of the populations that we serve for a multitude of reasons. And I think sometimes in certain school districts, the heart is in the right place, but the uh-huh. mind maybe has not caught up because I'd like Correct. to assume positive intent here. And I, I think there is a lot of that. Well, if you move into our district, we need to teach you how to be like us. My question yes. would be, what advice do you have for school professionals, school PR professionals who maybe work in a situation like that? Because we know at the end of the day, our school board is our governing body, but we also know that we have to do what's right for kids. How do we start that conversation and start making incremental moves. You've done a phenomenal job in Carol ISD. I think you've set the bar for everybody else. Some of us may have to start a little bit smaller than that. When I started to talk about the four-step process, I still feel like research is a huge piece of what every school district needs to do. So if you have the idea and and the terminology is cultural imposition, that's the belief that everyone should conform to the majority. And I think in public schools and in communities, we often believe that if people move to our community, they ought to become more like us. When in fact, the community changes and the community becomes more diverse, we all can open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the world that's out there. Everybody is so amazingly different. It's what makes us strong. Instead of trying to make everybody alike, we need to take everyday little steps towards learning more about each other and finding opportunities to invite and include people who are different from us, not so that we can make them like us, but that we can learn more about them and realize that we're all stronger and better together because of our differences. Yet there are many things that unite us. One of the things we're doing in our district is we're talking a lot about things that are very clear that are the same about us, our students and our staff, and things that are that can be seen. So in other words, if you stand two people together, you can talk about the similarities that you can see. But when you start to talk to them and you get to know them and you build a relationship with them, you find even more common things that you didn't realize you had in common and many more things that you have different that make you unique and add to just kind of the, I guess the best way to say the vibrance that is our, our community because we have a blend of so many different people from different countries and from different religions and we all learn better together and I think when we talk about 
committees, when we talk about school board elections, when we talk about student organizations, are they welcoming? Are they inclusive? Have they traditionally been open to all students? Or are we unintentionally, perhaps, are we unintentionally eliminating certain groups of students or discouraging or not encouraging? You know, that's two different Mm -hmm. things. You can discourage something, which is a very overt way to keep somebody from doing something, but you can just not encourage courage, which means you're just missing the boat, right? You're just missing the opportunity to invite students to do things. And so we're looking at our student organizations. We have a variety of student organizations in our schools, but do our, especially our secondary students, do they have an opportunity to form clubs and organizations? Do all students have that opportunity? And we just need to look at our practices. And we have our families telling us that they would like to see us more inclusive in some areas. But I think it's something that we have to be very very, very intentional about. And the problem is that too often we want people to join our culture and to be like us. My minister said in a sermon once, and I thought this was so powerful. He said, it's hard to see the brokenness of a system that works for me. Wow. So you, if, you, if you're in the majority population and you are a white person, you can be a wonderful person and you can have a wonderfully good heart, but you don't see some of the same things, some of the same broken of a system that is um, discriminatory against other minority groups because it's a system that works for you. And we, we're talking with our staff about that. What opportunities do our students have to see themselves in our classroom, to see themselves in our curriculum, to hear about their own religions in some of the songs we sing at uh, during the holidays or during concerts and things like that. So there are so many different ways that you can be culturally responsive. And I think we wanted to start with cultural competence for that very reason. For districts who commit, when they, I think when this episode airs, I think a lot of people are are going to be doing what I've been doing this whole time we've been talking and I've scratched most of the questions and I've just found myself taking notes because I'm like, I want to do this. I want to do this. What are some, (laughs) let's say like three quick beginning steps that a district could start immediately to get on this path? I think one of the things you need to do as a district that could be an immediate step is to step back with all of your processes and procedures for joining committees, for getting input from students and make sure that you're you have minority representation on your committees on one one of the things PTO boards we we have PTOs not PTAs here but opportunities for leadership in your district are in your processes for community engagement your student groups are there opportunities for minority representation and to hear minority voices and i think that was one of the immediate things we did now our diversity council was a very intentional committee put together of mostly minorities right and so so we did that in a very big way, but in a small way, school districts with before they have a problem or before they have a video go viral or something bad happen, they could already be intentional about looking at their committees, looking at their board officer positions, their board elections, looking at opportunities for parents to serve as volunteers. Are those same equal opportunities open to all of your uh, groups and populations in your community? Or do you tend to go to the majority for 
for most of your input and most of your feedback. That's one very simple way. I think you have to look at your curriculum. So we kept hearing over and over again, we heard from our students. Well, we would celebrate Black History Month when we were younger, but then after about fifth grade, it all got negative. It was all about slavery. It was all intense depictions of famous Black leaders and things like that. So we're looking at Black History Month, at uh, Asian Awareness Month, and different opportunities that we have throughout the school year to highlight and reinforce in our curriculum some of the great diversity that we have in this country and what this country was built upon. And, you know, there's a lot of national dialogue going on right now that's not very nice about that topic. So uh, as a school district, I think it's important that you have someone look at your curriculum, your test questions. Are they very, I I don't know how else to say it, white and Americanized questions? Uh, What types of things, what types of things are you teaching in your history classes and how are those things being portrayed? And so we are looking at our curriculum in addition to our minority voice that we have. And I think the other thing is in, in your policies, your student code of conduct, your consequences, what happens when someone violates your norms, your what you value in your district, when someone violates that and discriminates against a child or against another individual or even a staff member? What stance does the district take? And this seems so simple, but we would ask student after student after student, why didn't you go to adult? I did. They would go to an adult and they didn't feel like anything was being done. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. One may be the path of least resistance. When we're not equipped and we don't know, we don't have the tools or the skills to handle a conversation, and you know I'm a crucial conversations trainer. When we're not equipped to have those conversations, we avoid them. Or we try to have them and we don't have them, we don't handle them well. Mm -hmm. And I can see that correlation in this kind of dialogue on cultural competence and equity in districts. It is so important that we train and provide professional development for our staff because they're wonderful people. They just don't have the skills always to know how to handle those kinds of situations when they come up. The lack of wanting to get into the conversation or have the conversation or to be defensive in a conversation is something that we really wanted to address in Carol ISD. And I think that finding good trainers, finding good programs um, is very difficult. I should say one thing that I need to point out because for many districts, this could be the case that when you're talking about cultural competence or if you want to address it, equity becomes really, really important because sometimes you can look at your system and there are systemic problems that discriminate against certain populations. And so you may have resources to uh, students of low socioeconomic and the resources are are more available to other students than to them. And I'm going to give you one simple example. So when you're looking at equity, let's think about a bring your own device district. So for the longest time we were BYOD, right? Uh You brought your own device, whether that was a smartphone or an iPad or whatever. We don't have a very high, low socioeconomic number. So out of our population, we only have about 1.8% of our student population that's free and reduced lunch or low income. So those students stand out even more. So you have a program like Bring Your Own Device, but you are putting your students who do not have smartphones or access to technology or access to the internet 
internet at home, you put those students at a disadvantage. Right now in Carol ISD, we now have implemented the one-to-one ratio. We now have provided a district laptop or a district iPad to every student. Now, that took a bond election and it took a community support to do that, but we have now leveled the playing field in that one area of access to technology for every student in our district. So if you're in a community that has high low socioeconomic numbers, perhaps you're in a community where you're 68% free and reduced lunch. One of the ways you level the playing field for all students is you give equal access, equal access to school supplies, equal access to technology, equal access to breakfast and lunch. And I know a lot of districts that have different demographic makeup of Carol ISD have students that equity becomes a very, very big part of this conversation. But I would be remiss if I did not advise a school district to look very carefully at the research to find out if they are putting any of their students in their minority populations as a disadvantage systemically in their system, in their programs, in their curriculum, in their um, the way that they operate and, and try to equalize that and provide equity. Because I know a lot of urban districts have really worked hard to champion equity. And so we are talking about equity and inclusion, but that wasn't a piece of our journey that we had to pay a lot of attention to because we thankfully had very high performing students in all of those populations. So I just wanted to kind of point that out as well. Julie, I appreciate your wisdom. You've shared so much with us today. I know there are going to be other people who want to reach out and maybe we'll have specific questions regarding some of the strategies that you shared. What are some of the best places for our listeners to get a hold of you? Well, I am available by going on the Carol ISD website. My email is julie.thanum at southlakecarol.edu. I'm also on Twitter at Julie Thanum. Uh, I would love for anyone to reach out to me. We learn better together and um, I have learned so much. I have grown so much tremendously professionally and personally through this process. I should point out one other thing. We're doing a really exciting thing. We hired a leadership and culture coach. He's a dynamic person. He's our head basketball coach here, Eric McDade, but he has been pulled on full-time to visit with students face-to-face and with staff members and to train them on leadership issues, having courage over comfort. And we're starting a new program to get have our uh, teachers, two teachers at every campus to be certified culture coaches at the campus. And we're so excited about that. I can't wait to tell people about that program. And that's going to launch really for the 2021 school year. So there's a lot of neat ideas we have going on, but we would love to kind of pool that um, and, and share what we've learned and have others share what they know and learn with us as well. Hey, and we may even have you back to talk about how that program's working. I think that's a very cool idea. I would love to do that. You guys are doing great great work. I I love the uh, school PR happy hour. And I think that so many people are benefiting from hearing about topics that we either haven't addressed ourselves or that we can grow and learn from as well. So I thank you for the work that uh, you and Justin are doing. Thank you very much. You've been so supportive of us. I really, really appreciate your wisdom today and your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, school PR happy hour. Thanks for sticking with us in this longer than usual episode. Justin and I are committed to commuter-length episodes, but every now and then we cover something so particularly vital that we want to give you every ounce of content that we can. For me, the opportunity to discuss cultural competency with one of the best in the business was that very opportunity. Thank you, Julie, for your wisdom, your sharing of resources, and for the continued support of our show. 
It has been a wild few months in school PR. I hope everyone is hanging in there and taking time for themselves when they can. Justin and I are getting ready for season two, which will debut in September. Do you have a great idea for an episode? Let us know. You can email us at schoolprhappyhour at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at schoolprhappyhour or connect with us on Twitter at sprhappyhour. And until next time, let's all try to be a little bit better at our jobs every day.